She checked her reflection one last time before she undid the latch on the door. She fixed her scarf over her head. She smiled and she winked at herself. It's, it's become more habit now than anything else. She had a friend some years ago tell her she needed to work on her self-esteem, her poor image, and a lot of it had to do with how she saw herself. So she was challenged, before you leave the house every day, why don't you at least smile and wink at yourself? Tell yourself that you're lovable. Well, it never really worked. It's not part of a habit. She pulls the scarf over her head around her neck, partly for decor, it's partly accessory, it's partly so those in the crowded street she's about to enter won't recognize who she is, and she makes her way down across the markets. It's not to shop, it's not to buy anything. She's got an empty pot under her arm. She cradles it as if it was a child, and she walks with the destination in mind. It just so happened on the corner, a brand new tent of fabrics is just kind of set up overnight that the colors attract her. She walks over and touches some of the silk, looks at some of the patterns. It's there that she notices two other women that are doing the same, and they know who she is. They haven't recognized her yet, so she'll duck behind a large hanging garment. She'll fix her scarf again, and she'll dart out the opposite way she came, hoping there won't be a confrontation, hoping no one will know who she is and where she's come from. And she'll desperately try to make her way outside the city. You see, it's, it's there in the countryside. She finds a little bit of peace. Plants, flowers don't seem to judge. And she'll take those few moments of walk in solitude. Her greatest nightmare is that someone will know who she is and where she's come from. She'll try to avoid a confrontation at all costs. It's why she picked this spot this time of day. And yet on this day, everything about her is about to be unveiled. Her greatest nightmare is about to happen, and little does she know that it simply begins the first page of the rest of her life, and it has to happen. It's why I love reading these stories, not because I'm a huge fan of history, not because I particularly enjoy reading at all, but I go back and read these stories simply because the way Jesus dealt with people then is the way Jesus deals with us. You've heard me say it a lot. The lens of scripture has taken us into the first few verses of the story. I want you to open your own flat screen and watch the rest of it as it goes on. It's found in John chapter 4, the back of your Bible. Because maybe what this woman has to do today is the very same thing a lot of us have to do today. Or we'll never get to the next chapter of our life. If you're flipping and finding, go to the back of the Bible. Look for the guys' names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all big books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're in John chapter 4. As always, there's no shame in going to the table of contents up front. It's what it's there for. Turn on your app, your iPod. Get off your fantasy football team. If you look at it in church, you will lose. <laughs> it's, it's somewhere in here. It's one of the verses. It's, we don't have time to chase that down, but we're in John chapter 4. <laughs> I love this story. It's one of my most favorite stories in the Bible. Now the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who was, hmm. Although in fact, have you ever noticed that somewhere just a little past the age of 40, you need to stand back a little further. <laughs> I gotta get a new Bible because this one's starting to get blurry the closer you are. And I realize when I'm sitting here, I'm like, well, this is much better. Now the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. And when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. That's much better. 
Now, there's a lot happened politically here that I don't want to run into because I want to save time for the story that we have to get to today. But just suffice it to say, Jesus is in the lower part of the area of Israel. He's around the Jerusalem area. But the Pharisees, the, the spiritual leaders of the Jewish sect at that time, hated him because the crowds were following him instead of them. Now it's only chapter four. Jesus realizes the cross is a ways off. This isn't time for a confrontation. So instead of stirring up things in their capital, he'll just leave town. He's got other people to talk to. He's got other people that need to hear who he is. And this is where our story starts with these three words. Now he had to go. Circle, highlight, underline, had to go through Samaria. And stop. Because anytime in the Bible it says Jesus had to go, you should stop. Because he is the son of God. He is God in the flesh. Jesus doesn't had to anything. That's bad English, but that's really good theology. Jesus doesn't had to anything. If Jesus had to go, it means on God's big to-do list that day, there's one box that he has to check off. And whatever it is Jesus had to do that day, I want to pay special attention to. Because the way Jesus worked with people is the way he works with people. Come on, campuses. You got to play along. Fallbrook, Kailua, Green Oak, San Marcos, Escondido. Here we go. So if this is what he had to do, I want to know what's so important on his agenda. And he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And, and Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Because the disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And this is what he had to do that day. With all the different routes he could have taken, with all the different places he could have gone, this is what he had to do. To stop by a well, steeped in their history, to send the disciples into town and to wait. And a Samaritan woman comes at the sixth hour. Now Jewish time would start at 6 a.m. So if this is the sixth hour, six plus six is going to 12, we're noon. The sun is at its zenith. It's the hottest time of the day. This is not the time to go to the well. It still works that way in, in many parts of the world today. Uh, on my trips back and forth to Haiti, I've noticed there are a lot of places in that nation where they only have one pipe in the middle of the city that comes out. The pipe's been cut off because no matter what you put on the end of that pipe, it always gets taken or stolen. So the pipe just ends somewhere in a rock wall and water just flows out. And people line up there in the dark of morning on both sides of the pipe, all of them carrying whatever it is they can carry water back to their homes with. And they will take turn. This side fills, then this side, then this side, then this side, then this side, then this side. And you will wait in the dark of morning for hours until it is your turn in the community to come up and get water. You will carry it back home and you will get enough water, hopefully, to supply your family for the day. And the lines at that pipe start again come evening time. Because you've used your supply of water for the day. Now you need water to take your family through the nights. And the lines will again form. It's how it worked 2,000 years ago in the story. It's how it works today. You don't go to the well at noon. It is hot at noon. It is hard to carry at noon. She's avoiding something. Someone. You see around that pipe in Haiti, because the community has time just to stand and gather, that's where the news happens. Around that pipe in Haiti, that's where you find out what's going on, who's going on, who's going off. That's where you find out everything you need to know. It's where community happens, because community is just waiting in line at the well, if you will. And it's the news source 
of the day. And the reason why she doesn't want to go there is because she has often been the news source of the day. And she doesn't want another confrontation. She doesn't want to be another tabloid headline. And Jesus asked her for a drink and watched the impact. The Samaritan woman said to him, you, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Because Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And the race card is played heavily in this sentence. It has been happening at this point for over 500 years. It goes back to about 722 BC. It goes back to the great Assyrian army coming in and sacking Israel on their way to the battle of Carchemish, on their way to fight the Egyptian empire, where the main heads of the world are coming together to fight for world power. Little tiny Israel is just a pawn in the chess game of political power struggle. But Assyria had a great way of coming in, taking all of your leaders and all of your nobility and all of your educated out of the area and taking all the other areas that they have pilfered people from and put into your area. See, the more they can mix up people, the more they realize there won't be an uprising. And Babylon, when they come in and sack Syria and Egypt, is going to do the exact same thing with the people of Israel. In fact, Babylon is going to take thousands and thousands of good Jewish leaders to Babylon itself and keep them. So if Israel ever tries to uprise, we'll kill all the people that we have of you. And we're going to mix you with so many other different countries and nations. There is no one DNA. There is no one language. There is one no commerce. There is no one philosophy. And there is no one religion. And around 722 on for the next 200 years, Israel is split. So many Israelis now taken captive in Babylon. So many left home mixed with other countries. And those in Babylon said, we will keep our Jewish race. We are the people of God. We are the promise of God. We will only marry within the Jewish family, and we will keep our God. And those left back home said, that chick's cute. I don't care where she's from. That guy's good looking. I don't care where he's from. And the bloodline gets mixed. And along with that, you start taking on the idols and philosophy and religion of the other countries and nations. And 200 years later, around 500 BC, about 518 BC, I think it was, the Jews come out of Babylon. They're allowed to go back home and rebuild the temple. And all the Jews that were left there say, we can't wait for this day. Let's help. And the real Jews said, help? You're a bunch of mongrels. You're a bunch of half-breeds both in the bloodline and in the religion, we have no part with you. And from 500 on BC, there's been a bitter war between those that consider themselves pure Jews and those that they look at as disdain that messed up the people of God, the religion of God. And a good Jewish man will not walk through the area of Samaria, let alone talk to a Samaritan. It's why you get the good Samaritan stories and stories like this in the Bible. So when Jesus stops by her well in Samaria and asks her for a drink, she is shocked. Let me play another card that she's not aware of yet. But a good rabbi will not talk to a woman publicly. Any good spiritual leader, rabbi in Israel, will not talk to a woman publicly, even his own wife in public. And I know some of you women are like, I think I married a rabbi. <laughs> this guy just grunts a lot. <laughs> Sometimes we're men of very few words as it is. Every card, every status is being shattered right here. And she knows it. And he knows it because this is what he had to do. <laughs> this is getting good. So Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Lady, if you have any clue who was talking to you right now, 
You'd be asking me for living water. Now that living water is not just a spiritual term. That living water is a term that they use quite frequently then. See, almost all of your waters came from a well or a cistern. In other words, it's sitting water. It's runoff water. It's water that's going to taste like clay, look a little like clay. Oh, it's potable. Oh, it's drinkable. It will do when you have nothing left. But what they call living water, that's bubbling water. That's running water. That's water that comes up. That's water that shoots from a stream. Oh, that's good water. That's candy water. And he goes, if you had any idea who I was, you'd be asking me for living water. And she's going to play along. She's used to talking to strange men. She's quite good at it. It's part of her past. I'm not sure what her motives are here. There seems to be some sarcasm and some flirtation. You decide. Sir, the woman said, you've got nothing to draw with. And the well is very deep. Where can you get living water? Do you think you're greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Lady, we're talking about two different things. Whatever you get from here, you'll have to come back here. Whatever you get from here is going to leave you thirsty again. He goes, what I'm offering, you will never be thirsty. It will quench everything you've been thirsting for. You've tried to find your answers in this life. What I'm offering you is something that gives you the answer to life. Well, it's a great little sales pitch, and she sold on it. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She doesn't quite understand, but she knows he's offering something amazing. This is where in Christianity we stop. I've told you enough about Jesus and what he offers that you don't quite get it, but, but you're in on it. And we go, why don't you say a prayer right now? And Jesus would say, why don't you just bow your little head, dear, and close your eyes and fold your hands and accept me into your heart. And that would be good enough. And a lot of times that's where we stop. I've told you enough about Jesus where you're starting to get it, not quite understand it, but you want it. Just say a prayer and you're in. But he won't go there. There's something he had to do this day, and I love it. He told her, why don't you go call your husband and come back? Well, I have no husband, she replied. Quite embarrassing for Jesus, isn't it? Anytime Jesus is wrong in the Bible, you may want to stop. Because <laughs> my bet is he's not. Why don't you call your husband? It's a timeshare presentation. I need both of you present. This will take, I don't know, about an hour and a half. If you sit through it, I'll give you some living water or even a greater prize. Why don't you get him and come back? Oh, I'd like to, but I don't have a husband. <laughs> only Jesus gets away with this, by the way. He's the only one that can walk up to women and go, when do you do? And she's like, I'm not pregnant. And he's like, oh, yes, you are. <laughs> Sorry you lost your job. I didn't lose my job. You should talk to your boss. <laughs> Why don't you go get your husband? I don't have a husband. Let me tell you about your husband. And Jesus said to her, you're actually right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. The man you currently have is not your husband. So what you have just said is quite true. If you get your husband and come back, we'll talk. I'm not married. Well, that's, that's actually true. You've been married five times, and the guy you're currently with is someone else's husband. Now we know why she doesn't like getting in line with the other women. Because <laughs> if she's gone through five and now working on number six, and every one of those women have at least told ten friends, well, you do the math. She's got no place to stand in line in the morning or in the evening 
where she is not the topic of conversation. It's why she's come at noon. It's what she wants to avoid at all cost. And my bet is today, whatever it is you want to avoid at all cost is the very thing on God's to-do list that he has to do with you today. And we're about to find out why. She hears these words and she immediately tries to get religious. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. <laughs> Our fathers worship on this mountain. You Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. What? She's doing what we do. Someone comes, hey, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Really? I heard about the porn addiction and that you're going through a divorce. I've been thinking about going back to church. That's what's happening here. Someone confronts you with your past. You all of a sudden start playing religion. Well, I've thought about church. You know, we have a church on this mountain. I know you guys have a church in Jerusalem. We immediately try to get religious to cover up past, don't we? To find an answer for past. I don't have time to jump into it. I'm taking that next week. Next week, how we get unstuck from religion. Today, how do we get unstuck from our past? How do we get unstuck from the guilt and shame of who we are, what we've done, where we've come from? See, we quickly will jump to religion and we'll get stuck there as well. That's next week. This week, what he has to do. She wants to talk about church and where church is, where to find God. She doesn't know she's found God. The man speaking to her is speaking in red letters. And he declares, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come. Circle, highlight, underline. When the true worshipers, circle that, will worship the Father in spirit, circle, and truth, circle. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must, circle, highlight, underline, worship in spirit and truth, circle that. He goes, look, lady, if you think you can find God going to church, I've got something to tell you. God isn't at church only. God is here with you. God is waiting. In fact, it's in front of you. But here's what God wants. God wants real worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. Real worshipers are going to worship God in spirit and truth. And that's repeated three different times in here. This is why I couldn't let you go with a prayer. This is why I couldn't say, well, I'm Jesus, accept me in your heart. You're going to be fine the rest of your life because you're going to go back to your life and your life's going to remind you you don't deserve Jesus. Your life's going to remind you you are unworthy. Your life's going to remind you that whatever it is church promises Christians, it's not for you because you know what you've done. You know who you are. And I don't care how many days you sit in church you can't get over that. He goes, so we're dealing with it right here, right now. I know the five. I know the one. And unless you can come out with the truth, you're not going to be a worshiper of God. You try to worship God in spirit. It's not about a place. It's not about a group of buildings. It's not about a campus you go to. You can worship God wherever you are. God will be wherever you are. And you try to worship God in spirit. And what happens? The moment you start worshiping God, the moment you start to pray, the moment maybe the music, one of those songs, and you just start to raise your hand a little, this little voice goes, remember where that hand has been? Yep. Yep. The moment you feel like there's a place where maybe you and God have something going, a relationship, and this little voice goes, remember 1989? Yep. See, it's the truth about you that hasn't been dealt with. And he goes, lady, we're getting that out right here, right now. 
And the woman said, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Look, I know one day God will send the Messiah. That's Old Testament Hebrew. The Christ, that's New Testament Greek. The exact same word, two different languages. I know that Jesus, I know that God one day will send the Messiah, Christ, his Savior, his Son into the world. And when his Son comes, his Son will explain all this to us. I wonder if Jesus just has to bite his lip at this moment. I wonder if he ever had a Jesus grin that just wanted to bust out. She's looking at him saying, I know one day Jesus will come. He'll tell me about this stuff. (laughs) And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. This incredible, once again, over and over, only two ways to look at it, arrogance, audacity of this man. To constantly claim he is the son of God. He is the long-awaited for savior of the world. The Messiah, the Christ that all time has been talking about. The constantly claim by which he will judge all people. The only way, the only truth, the only life for all nations, all people, all ethnicities, all religions. Almost every page, he can't stop talking about being the son of man. The Old Testament phrase for the salvation, the son of God that will come and judge all men. Or in here, actually claiming, I who am talking to you am he. He is either God who came, showed us how to live, and died on the cross to pay so we don't have to. Or why do we continue to go back and read of an incredibly lunatic liar who over and over again claims to be the only way, not a way, not one way, the only way. To sit here today in whatever venue, whatever campus, and to realize, what have I done with these claims? Is he truly God, the Son of God, Lord of my life? Or have I just made him an option? And if he is just an option, he is a liar, not an option. Lady, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. The one who speaks to you, that's me. Not just in the disciples return and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. And no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with a woman? See, the disciples know this shouldn't happen. The disciples come back from town and they got their little 12-pack tacos and stuff. And they're coming back to the well and they're like, (gasps) it's Jesus with a Samaritan. And they're engaged in conversation. It's a Jewish man with one of those, the muggles. And they're in a conversation. It is a rabbi with a woman. They don't have a place to put this in. They come back with their, and they're like, and they look at each other, but then they're like, but it's Jesus. Someone better tell him he's wrong. (laughs) And they just sit down and eat their munchies staring at him. They know this is out of place. They know this is culturally, spiritually, racially unacceptable. And they can't say anything because he speaks in red letters. So then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Christ, the Messiah, the son of God? And they came out of town and they made their way toward him. Now the disciples of Jesus have a conversation about why they didn't get anything to eat and why they went to town. That's a great conversation. But for the sake of time, we skip it. Verse 39. So many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Underline that testimony. In other words, her story. He told me everything I ever did. Oh, that's worthy of underlining. So the Samaritans came to him and they urged him to stay with him. And he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is savior of the world. The entire town, she runs and tells. She leaves her water jar and she says, here's my story. Come meet a man who knows everything I've ever done and who I done it with. <laughs> she shares her story. The people come out of town 
They beg him to stay, and for two days he stays. And so many Samaritans come to understand this Christ. And then they say, we no longer believe just because of your story. We now have our own. Isn't it amazing? The very thing she was running from, the very thing that was her worst nightmare, the very thing that she prayed to God would not be found out, would not be brought up. The tabloid that she wanted to avoid that day is the very thing she takes to town and now shares with the people. What happened? Somewhere in this little discourse, she found everything she needed to deal with her guilt and her shame. And I never got John chapter 4. Even when I started really walking with God, not just playing Christianity, but walking with God, surrendering to God, not my hopes, my dreams, my job, my finances, but yours. And this little church in Fallbrook would pick me up and have me work with their youth and, and put me on staff. Even when I, I moved up to a church in East L.A. County in Pomona and, and started working there in the inner city with kids. You know, for the first six years of being a youth pastor, I would go into my office and I would lock my door. I know it really didn't mean anything. It just made me feel a little safer. I was so afraid someone was going to walk into that church who knew who I was and what I did. Someone was going to walk into that church and say, hey, that, that youth pastor that you guys seem to like a little bit, let me tell you who he really is. And I kept two cardboard boxes folded flat in a little closet in my office because on that day, I would open them up. I would take the bottom as fast as I could. I would take anything personal from my desk and shelves and I would be gone. See, when the rug was pulled out from under me and this little church that I was faking so hard to be spiritual and leading their youth found out who I really was, I knew it was over and I knew it was just a matter of time. And I would teach the high schoolers and I would keep an eye on the back door of the room as I taught the high schoolers about God's forgiveness. Because I knew there's going to be a day someone walks in and says, hey, let me tell you about this guy. And I would run. <laughs> there's nothing else I could do because whatever they were about to share was the truth about me. And no one ever broke down in chapter 4 and said, man, Chris, if you're trying to worship God spiritually, you better stop. <laughs> because God wants the truth about you. And the truth about you is killing you in church. So what do we do with it? I'm glad you asked. You have a note sheet. And some of you neurotically have been flicking your pen saying, give me something to write in a blank. I get that. It's time. I want to walk you through what I had to learn. Now, if you've been coming to North Coast for the last 8, 10, 11 years, you're like, this sounds somewhat familiar. It is. I'm going to go through this about every two years with this church. It comes up in so many different texts. The last time I did it was in the Genesis series when Joseph's brothers, a bunch of brothers that sold their son into slavery in Egypt and yet told their dad he was killed by a wild animal. When there's famine in the land, dad comes out a decade later and says, hey, go to Egypt and buy food, and the brothers don't move. The brothers are paralyzed. The brothers are allowing their own family to waste away and die rather than to go and face the skeletons in their closet. That E word is a nasty word for them. And every time they have heard of Egypt, the hair stands up on the back of their neck. Is someone going to find out what we've done? And the whole facade is going to come crashing down. It happened with Peter on the beach. We may get to that if we have time. It runs over and over throughout Scripture. It's a God that says, thanks for coming to church and trying to worship me spiritually. Now knock it off. Today, I want to talk about your past. Well, I don't have a past. One, two, three, four, five. Can I talk about six? I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. He goes, thank you. Let's deal with it. See, it's time to face the music. In your note sheet, I want you to write this down. Not dealing with the past robs us of our future. 
When we refuse to go back and deal with the truth about who we are, what we've done, or God forbid, what's been done to us, when we refuse to deal with our past, we cannot move forward with the person God wants us to be. And I heard all my life this freedom that's found in Christ and the joy that's found in Christ and the contentment that's found in Christ. And I never, ever had it. Scariest place in my life was being alone at night when I couldn't sleep. Because when I was alone at night and couldn't sleep, I absolutely hated who I was with. I loved being the life of the party. I loved making people laugh. I got good at it. Especially when I wasn't really a Christian and there was no rules. <laughs> when everyone laughed, it made me feel good. It made me feel like I was fun. And when the party was over, I was stuck with the only guy that wasn't fun. And not dealing with our past robs us of the person that Christ has called us to be. And you may be sitting here today in whatever venue, whatever campus going, well, Chris, I don't know if I really have guilt or shame about anything. So here's a test. I want you individually to stand up and share the worst thing you've ever... No, we're not going to do that. (laughs) Some of you start to head for the door. Here's the test. Is there anything in your past that if the people in your room right now found out about you would mean that you would never come back to this room? Is there anything in your past that if we found out about and knew the details of, we would never see you again? If you answer yes to that, then you don't have freedom from your past. Your past has you. And it's time to knock that off. Oh, I had a list of things that if my youth group, my church, the staff found out about, I'd be gone. I would just be gone. Now, that's guilt and shame. Guilt is that something I feel so tremendously bad about. Shame is where I convince myself I don't feel bad about it. I am bad because. See, guilt, I feel bad about what I've done. Shame is I am bad because of what I've done. And when guilt and shame go on in, in, in solitude, when guilt and shame are left unchecked, it's like, it's like mold in a dank, damp cellar that just spreads like crazy. And I feel like no matter what I was trying to do outwardly, inwardly, I was filled with nothing but this this festering of guilt and shame that just flourished in isolation. And there wasn't enough of Bible reading in the world that could overcome it. And this is what Jesus knows. And this is what he has to do before you try to worship him spiritually. It's time to go get your husband. (laughs) See how to deal with it. Number one, we're going to have to face the truth. And just recognizing it is truth is big. We have to face the truth. Have you ever noticed you cannot outrun your past? I've seen people, family members that have spent decades, state after state after state, relationship after relationship after relationship trying to outrun the past. But have you ever noticed wherever you go, you are there? Has that ever dawned on you? Has it ever dawned on you, wherever you go, however fast you go there, however tricky you are about getting there, once you get there, you realize, oh, crap, I'm still here. (laughs) I couldn't do it. You can't outrun you. And the problem is your past is the truth about you. You have to accept that is me. That really is what I did. Those are really the relationships I involved myself in. That was really how I was gratifying myself. That is truly the mindset of Chris. That is what I was living for. That's true. I can't deny that. You just have to stop and face the truth. Go get your husband. I don't have a husband. He goes, I know. I'm trying to get to the truth about why you don't. You had five. The guy you're currently with isn't your husband. (gasps) I see you're a prophet. (laughs) You know, we got a big church in town. Shut up. I'm not talking about religion. That is another trap. That's next week. Oh, we're great at getting trapped in religion. It'll leave you just as dry and fruitless and far from God. 
That's next week. He goes, I'm trying to get you to what Larry talked about last week. You made the problems. You made the decisions. He told you how to get out of it, but now you still have to live with the memory of it, the guilt and the shame of it. You just got to stop and face it today. This is true. That is who I am. That's what I did or what was the That is true. Secondly, we have to accept the truth. And he said, Chris, I pretty much believe those are the same things. No, they're not. Stopping and saying, this is who I am. That is exactly what I've done. And then accept it. Instead of what we try to do, we try to bury it. Have you ever noticed when you bury your past, you're burying it alive? And it always has a way like those movies of just crawling out, punching a hole in the coffin. You're like, ah! It's not dead. It's not gone. It's a part of me. We try to bury our past. We try to blame others about our past. Well, if I was never in that relationship in the first place, well, my first husband, you don't understand the house I grew up with. My dad was, yes, 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 yes. Use your actions. We accept it. I stopped blaming others. I stopped bearing it. And I stopped blaming myself. I know God forgave me. I couldn't forgive me. This wasn't a life before I was a Christian. That may have been easy to get over. I grew up in a Christian home. This was me doing this as part of my Christian life. I wasn't a Christ follower. I claimed to be a Christian. I went to church, but I don't know what I was. I was just jacked up. And so I'm blaming myself. And he goes, no, no, you accept the truth. This is it. This is what I did. No ifs, ands, or buts. I'm not blaming anybody. This is what I did. I simply have to accept that. It's page three of the Bible. Remember page one, that everything we know and this planet we spin on and everything that's echoing out in space is created by a big bang. Science can't explain, but we know because everything in science and religion tells us comes back to a big bang. And so you just have to have faith in the big bang. Page one, verse one says the big bang was a voice of God that spoke things into being. There's an unmade maker. There's a creator behind creation. Page two, this God created us to have a great relationship with him and others. In fact, a perfect relationship with him and others. Page three, we screwed it up. And from page three on, the rest of the Bible is just telling us how to deal with the screw up. It's a two-page Bible, folks. And then we came into the scene and had a decision. <laughs> and page three, when Adam and Eve messed this up, when God said, the only rule, don't eat of this fruit, everything else, there's one rule on earth. And they're like, which fruit? Mm. <laughs> Remember what they did? They hid from God. They clothed themselves in leave. They, they, they hid their shame. They hid their guilt. They hid from God. And that's, isn't that hilarious? There's two people on earth kind of God do you think you have? Where he's like, I don't know. I put him here yesterday. <laughs> what kind of God do you think you have to hide from him? Oh, I love laughing at them because it shows me how dumb I am. I hide my past from God. And he's like, I see you. <laughs> Chris, I see you. All of you, I see you. And then they start blaming others. Well, the woman you gave me, <laughs> I love that. He blames both God and the woman. Well, the woman, and by the way, you gave it to me. She said, eat the fruit, and I did. We've been doing it ever since, haven't we? We hide, we blame others, we blame ourselves. I tell you, it doesn't work until we get to a third step. We're going to have to accept grace, not guilt. We have to accept grace, not guilt. Really easy to say. How in the world do you do it? I was having lunch this week with my buddy, Mike Foster. He, uh, he started an organization called People of the Second Chance. I think it's secondchance.org. Um, how to deal with your hurt and pain. How to deal with your past. And then coaching others to deal with others that are caught in the hurt and pain of their past. 
And he was sitting with me, he goes, Chris, have you ever read this book called, I think it's The Art of Forgiving by a guy named Louis Smedes, S-M-E-D-E-S. And I go, no, I never had. He goes, man, let me tell you all the research that Smedes has and Renee Brown. And he goes, there's a ton of research on this. He goes, when you can't get over the shame of who you are and what you've done, the world gives us two offers. Number one, you have to be better. Make yourself a better person. And if you can be better, you're going to feel better about yourself. And I looked across the table and I'm like, that don't work. He goes, of course it doesn't. I can be the absolute best I can be. I still cannot erase who I was. It's not who I am today I'm struggling with. It's who I was. So it doesn't matter what I change about who I am today. I always know who I was. He goes, well, in the second core to action, this is why there's so many positive thinking and self-esteem books out there right now because the world is just dealing with how do I get rid of my guilt and shame? You have to think better and then you'll feel better. You think better about yourself. Positive thinking, smile and wink in the mirror before you leave the home and you'll feel better. And there's not an amount of positive thinking in the world that changes the truth about who I am and what I did and who I did it with. He says, and this is where Lewis Mead says, people that have been able to truly deal with shame and guilt the only solution, he calls it this, a spiritual experience of radical acceptance. When people have a spiritual experience, not going to church, but one of radical acceptance, not just accepted by God, but others in that community, he goes, those people, scientifically, every study, have been able to get rid of shame and the guilt of their past. And I said, Mike, that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about this week. I'm, I'm buying this lunch. This is why Jesus had to go because there's not anything else that will work he says lady if i have you say a prayer my disciples are coming back we're going to leave you're going to feel good about this moment you had with jesus feel good about god's love and plan until you go back to town and the moment you go back to town you're going to go back to the truth about who you are and the moment you face the truth about who you are it's going to deny everything that just happened at this well so I want to get out everything you are and have done so that when you face it again, you can shrug your shoulders and go, he knows. Did he know about husband number three? Yep. Did he know about all four husbands? No, he knew about all five. I didn't tell you about one. Did he know about the guy you're currently? Yep. He knows. It's done. I was accepted once that came out. I was accepted with him specifically telling me, I can't have you worship me spiritually unless you worship in truth. And so many times we come to church and we try to worship God spiritually and we wonder why it's not happening because you haven't come clean with the truth about you. You're still hiding it, feeling guilty, blaming others. You're carrying the shame. You think you're broken. You think you're marred. You think you're unworthy. You believe you're unlovable. And no matter what I preach or Larry preaches, week in and week out, there is the truth about you that tells you it doesn't apply to you and that's the truth and you can't argue it you can't deny it because that's the truth and you have to stop and say God I'm facing that that is me and I'm accepting it that's what I did I have every excuse in the world but I'm done making excuses I did that and God today I want to thank you for that what not thank you that it happened not thank you that I did it not thank you, God forbid, that it was done to me, but I want to thank you that in spite of who I am and what I was, today I am loved. Today I'm called son or daughter. Today you are a prince or princess in the kingdom of God. You are heir to the throne, and he knows every detail about who you are. You just haven't come out with him. You haven't gotten around the well with him and said, this is it. What is it that every time you take a step forward with God, it rams you back 10 paces? That's what he has to deal with. Stop trying to worship me spiritually when you will not bring out the truth. And God goes, you know what's laughable? I know it. 
You can't cover that up with fig leaves. He goes, I, I know it. And he wants it. It's why after he died on the cross and pulled off Easter, he went out and he found Peter. And Peter's hanging out on the beach. Remember, Peter's gone back to fishing. He goes, Peter, you and I need to take a walk. Peter's like, what's up, Lord? He goes, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter was hurt that he asked him three times. Why? Because just a couple weeks later, when Jesus died on the cross and was getting the smack beat out of him by the Roman soldiers, Peter came back to the trial, warmed himself around the fire. They recognized him as a disciple. He was afraid he was going to go down with Jesus, so he denied it. He denied it, and he started cursing the name of Jesus that he has nothing to do with him. You think Peter's ever going to preach another sermon? No. You think Peter's ever going to get up and try to talk to a group about the Christ he followed without keeping an eye on the back door and wonder if one of those Roman guards are going to walk in? No. It will plague him the rest of his life. And Jesus says, before I go back to the Father, I have to have a talk with you. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter, I know what you did. I know what you did. I know what you did. And right here, right now, I want you to know that I know and we're good. So it never haunts you again. It never haunts you again. When's the last time you've take what you're scared to death about, what you pray to God your church doesn't find out about, and you've been able to thank God for it? Not that it happened, not that it was done, but God, in spite of the truth about me, I am loved, and I will accept how you accept me today. I'm not talking about forgiveness. Our American churches do a great job teaching forgiveness. But let me prove a point in, in every venue, in every campus. How many of you believe that if you've sinned, all you have to do is ask God to forgive you once, and he will forgive you? How many believe that God does that for you? People like, Chris, you pulled this on us so many times, I don't answer anymore. <laughs> How many believe that if you ask God to forgive you of something, that he will forgive you of something? Yeah. <laughs> Scaredy cats. You're like, just, just talk. I'm not raising my hand. How many of you have asked for forgiveness for the same situation more than once? Probably more than a dozen times. Hypocrites. That's exactly what I thought. <laughs> Why is that? You and I both know God forgives me. Then why did I spend years constantly asking for forgiveness for the same thing? When once does it? I didn't need forgiveness. I needed freedom from it. And no one showed me the freedom from it. No one showed me, Chris, you have to accept this grace that God knows about you and he accepts you anyway. The cross is big enough that every time those thoughts come, they don't scare you back into a hole somewhere, but you bring them out in the light and say, God, that's right. And this is going to be daily for a while. Why? Because they're used against you. Why? I'm glad you asked. Because last... How to move forward, our past will be Satan's greatest weapon or God's most powerful tool. Our past will be Satan's greatest weapon against us or God's most powerful tool. And every time I try to walk with God spiritually and the truth comes up and haunts me, and I don't know how it works, folks. All I know is in your notes, I put Revelation 12, 10, that Satan is the accuser of Christians. John 10, 10, that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy my relationship with God. 1 Peter 5, 8, that Satan is a roaring lion looking to devour my relationship with Christ. I don't know how it works. I just know it does. I just know who I was from 88, 89, 90, 91, and part of 92, that that constantly comes up against me. You're like, Chris, you didn't mention sins. You mentioned years. That's me. That's me. And I know every time I tried to walk with God or get my life straightened out, the truth came up, and I just sent running instead of grabbing it saying, God, that is true, and I accept that. That's what I did. But God, today I accept that you call me son in spite of that, that you give me grace and mercy, that that is forgiven. And every time that comes up, you grab it. You thank God and praise him that in spite of that, this is who I am today. Guess what stops happening? It stops being used against you. Because every time Satan uses my past, it makes me more in love with a God who's given me grace. He stops firing my past against me. And now my past is the very story I love to share with students when I sit with students. 
instead of the thing I was scared to death would keep me from students if anyone knew about it. Where's that come from? It's John chapter 4. It's the woman at the well. I had a church tell me that God loves me, but the church never told me that God really, really likes me. See, I knew there was a God that loved me because he had to love everyone, but I knew that there was a God who did not like me. I never sat at the well. Failure in the kingdom of God is an event. It is never a person. You are not unworthy. You are not unlovable. You are not broken beyond repair. You are not useless to God. You can either believe the liar or you can be, believe your Lord. And you have to take it and say, God, this is me. This is who I have been. And God, thank you that in spite of that, he goes, now, Chris, you raise those hands and you will worship me in spirit. And Chris, you will worship me in truth. I know you. I love you. Don't ever hide that again. And don't ever, ever just try to be religious. We'll hit that next week. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from the shame and unrighteousness. God doesn't just want to forgive you. He wants to free you from a past that's being used against you. Today, find time to sit and say, God, here's the list. Here's my guilt and here's my shame. It may be a daily prayer for a while, but teach me how to accept your love because I feel like I'm unlovable. Father, I thank you for that gift, for the power of the cross, that your death covered it, that God, this is what you had to do with that woman then. And I believe that on your checklist of things you want to do in our life, this is first. And if we cannot do this, we cannot move forward. May we stop believing the lies about ourselves because they're based on truth. But may we understand that that truth means there is greater grace and mercy from you. May we accept that instead. May you teach us how to have this moment, to come clean, and to thank you that in spite of that, this is how you see us today. In your name, amen.